0: Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm owner. And you're listening to the Late Night, a horror podcast.
1: Welcome back, late nighters. This is the August September episode as we prepare to do our Halloween episode. It is only 66 days till Halloween. Mm. Sixty-six days.
0: Sixty-six days. Oh my gosh, that 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 helps. Like mm-hmm. I'm in like hellish August heat right now. Like those ends of August. Yeah, I, I usually issue ice in my beverages during recording for audio, but you're gonna hear some clanking ice this time because it is too damn hot. But sixty-six days, I will in be in blissful August. Oh yeah, yeah, absolute hell times. It's constantly humid, constantly hot. Mm. Delightful. So
1: tonight we've got a special double feature lined up. We're beginning the evening with Lucky McKee's May from 2002, starring Angela Bettis, Anna Ferris, and James Duvall. And we'll be following that with Marjan Satrapi's The Voices from 2014, starring Ryan Reynolds, Gemma Arterton, and Anna Kendrick. We'll be right back after the tone. Stay tuned. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're gonna do our best guys.
0: <laughs> we were just talking about how cheery the uh, the research topics were for this month. <laughs> where like we managed to, ha- yeah, we managed to have two movies that were surprisingly less dark than you would think these very hack and slash movies right. would be, but when you're figuring out what to talk about, it, it's hard to to find cheery topics on, you know, dismemberment and mental illness. And... Let's just say, we'll get
1: all to all that Halloween happy horse shit in about, mm-hmm. you know, in a couple of months, but for mm-hmm. now, you know, uh, you may want to take some benzos.
0: Mm. <laughs> no, no, I'm gonna, uh, we're gonna do our best to not depress you too badly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so... May, who is played by Angela Bettis from Girl Interrupted and about a million other things, is so lonely that she'll do anything to make friends. And that includes making one herself. Mm-hmm. Written and directed by Lucky McKee, who if you don't know him, uh, kicked off the Masters of Horror many, many moons ago. Uh, in that lineup included John Carpenter's Pro-Life, Peter Medic's The Washingtonians, and McKee's own Sick Girl. Uh, which also starred Bettis, and if you guys don't know that, what the fuck have you been doing with your lives? Go watch those; those are amazing. Um, the film May has a fairly simple premise. It begins with May Dove Kennedy, a young girl who has a lazy eye, and the result is that she is socially ostracized for having to cover up her impairment. Uh, May has a mother, and what does her mother do? Uh, To paraphrase Keanu Reeves and Constantine when revealing that he was haunted by demons, he said, My parents did what most parents would do. They made it worse. (laughs) Unfortunately, Mrs. Kennedy is a vapid, superficial woman who decides that the best thing for her daughter's social ostracization is not to teach self-love and self-acceptance, not more hugs, nope. It's to gift her daughter a doll, which Mae is never allowed to take out of its box. This actually happened to me as a kid, and I can tell you, uh, that's traumatizing. Not even being able to touch her own toy, uh, Mae develops a strong disassociation with reality. Uh, she tries to empathize with people, but struggles to make connections because she's socially underdeveloped. Uh, the people she meets only want specific things, never all of her. Uh, Which is definitely a big theme here. The majority of the people wanted sex, others wanted a babysitter, and others wanted a vet. But no one really took the time to understand May or the pain she struggled through. And the result is that May reaches a breaking point where she decides that the only way to possibly fill the loneliness inside of her is to build a friend from the parts of the people around her. Bloody Disgusting ranked the film number 17 in their list of top 20 horror films for the decade, calling the film, quote, criminally underseen at the time of its release, and I'm inclined to agree. (laughs) It has been almost 20 years, but I will never forget how I was hit with an overwhelming sense of loneliness when I first saw May. When we first saw May, I was blown away by how we were seeing a completely different type of creator beside the tire trope of the mad scientist. Mm. And that's an interesting thing to pay attention to here because with varying degrees of scruples, mm. Dr. Victor Frankenstein and Dr. Herbert West are ultimately very similar. They wanted to conquer death and make a name for themselves. Uh, mm. conversely, May is trying to merely to conquer loneliness and she could give a shit if she's famous. Uh, She comes from a world where people make avatars of themselves, where Mm. people augment their appearances for social media. Mm. May is now considered a Mm. cult figure, but she embodies everything terrifying about the idea that people have to streamline themselves in order to fit in. Um, I am sure that there is already a more authoritative feminist lens on this one, but I would say that it does belie the bigger picture, that everyone participates in a world where we other someone else. And if you've ever been excluded from a group because you're poor or overweight or handicapped or disabled may is your poster child because she embodies the dangers of vanity over self-acceptance she shows that there is a wealth of privileges outside of being white male or cis that we take for granted every day and that we don't always stop to realize them and appreciate them having friends is a privilege being able to socialize is a privilege
0: yeah yeah, all very true. I mean, I think it's... I feel like I have an odd lens on it because I I was homeschooled when I was young. I was homeschooled up until sixth grade.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: you know, like, I feel like homeschooled kids get a bad rap for generally being poorly socialized. Oh, which, yeah. as, as one of them, I, I think I was okay. I came out pretty normal on the other side. But I definitely knew a range of other children who some of whom you know were hanging out with big groups all the time they were seemed you know pretty normally socialized and then there were other ones where you know they stayed home all the time they all of their education done at home they might only have their siblings if that as normal playmates and learning partners which meant that they never quite got that same set of social interaction which leads to you know difficulty relating to people and thankfully I think a lot of those kids grow out of it as they grow up and they get into the world more but may is like the test case of what happens if you don't what happens Uh if you stay just as isolated and just as remote as you know these these kids started to and it's it's really heartbreaking to see her as a child and see the beginnings of that isolation and then watch that continue all the way into her adult life and it's such a bummer because the start of the movie you have so much hope for her where she's building these fledgling fledgling kind of relationships and there seem to be several people who are really genuinely interested in her like which is gung ho achievement hurrah but it's kind of like it's it's a little too little too late at, at the point then, we see then...
1: And then we remember this is a horror movie and that's yeah, job is to stick a paring uh-huh. knife in your ribs. And then it's just like, <laughs> fuck you, man. I, I loved you so much. Why did you have to go like this?
0: And it's so funny and- too. Like it, it, it was a funny month where both movies had protagonists who were also mm-hmm. the villains because you spend mm-hmm. the whole movie trying yeah. to like feeling so sympathetic and so bad mm-hmm. for these people who go on to do terrible, terrible, terrible things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know it's this is not you know the the action hero horror movie this is the oh no oh no i'm i feel so bad for you despite it all horror movies
1: well i think that's that's kind of it right the human mind is such that it's very comfortable with the idea of always finding a villain but if we Mm -hmm. look at like disney plus has recently released loki Mm -hmm. in the last couple of months Mm -hmm. And I definitely think you know that's been a smash success. And if you look at what Loki says to Ancient Mobius at one point, you know, spoilers if you haven't seen it yet. The quote is, "No one who's bad is ever really bad, and nobody Mm -hmm. who's good is ever truly good." Yeah. And yeah, I mean, there are very,
0: very few villains who think they're the bad guy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Right, Thanos. Right, I can Mm -hmm. I can snap my fingers and make half the world disappear. Right. And his mm-hmm. daughter turns to him and she's like, you know, you don't know that we need to get rid of half the people. And he goes, no, I'm the only one who knows that. Mm-hmm. Or the only one brave enough to do something mm-hmm. about it. And you think, yeah, no, you're a batshit fuckneck. It's crazy. Right. Like, and... no matter
0: how how horrifying the cause is, usually the perpetrators genuinely believe in it. Like,
1: <laughs> <Right. And laughs> Aside it's...
0: from exceptions where people are total sellouts, like, I think the majority of villains believe they're doing what they're doing for a reason
1: and the majority of psychologists that i know they don't like to label things Mm -hmm, you know it's more like you know at this point with this individual there are a range of things that Mm -hmm. probably went wrong in the past i Mm -hmm. don't you know it's like it's not really so much about placing blame so much as getting the gun out of the chimpanzee's hand before it can do more damage and that's really that to me is kind of like Mm -hmm what a responsible adult does rather than what everybody else does who doesn't really have an education in psychology or even just a basic understanding of empathy
0: Mm. so yeah yeah for sure like empathy is key and there's there's new gray area and nuance in every situation and boy oh boy did i feel it this month (laughs) yeah Yeah. Also, like while we're talking about May, very bold of Lucky McKee to cast himself in the highly aspirational role of guy making out an elevator, truly using his directorial powers to give himself a dream role, which, like, good for you, sir.
1: (laughs) Hey, intern. I want to stick my tongue in your jaws. So let's go. Oh, ah.
0: I know. I tried to look for it. Like I tried to find the credits of a girl making out in an elevator, and I didn't. I was like, who got that gig? <laughs> like, right. Fingers crossed. Like maybe it was his girlfriend at the time, but. I mean,
1: there's gonna be a lot of times we're gonna talk about that sort of stuff. But I mean, mm-hmm. let's just say it's not as bad as jacking off into a ficus in front of a mm-hmm. journalist. God, or, Jesus, you know.
0: no! I just, I just mm-hmm. hope she got paid. That's it. I just hope I she do got too. paid.
1: Or that I sh- or, or that at least he was a good kisser, if any.
0: You know, all of the above would be nice. Right. <laughs> As an actor who has had some truly shaky stage kisses, you can only hope, like, much love to all of my former stage kisses, but, like, I have gotten jabbed in the eye by people's noses. I've had so much drool on me. I've had, I think, a notable one was just such a lovely actor who showed up and was like boy oh boy i just had the garlickiest bean salad for lunch and i just can't stop burping oh okay cool let's do the kiss uh, scene i'm like please, please please no like i'm so paranoid i'm like i will brush my teeth immediately before this eat nothing like contestable nope. for hours before i'm like why why Nicholson anyway say
1: it's a professional courtesy to do uh-huh. it before i've yeah, yeah.
0: All, all my love to girl making out in an elevator. Fucking Jack
1: Nicholson used to think it was a courtesy. Okay, well, yeah. you really let that sink yeah. in. Yeah,
0: if that man is thinking of things as a common courtesy, you know it really is. <laughs>
1: it really is the baseline. Yeah. <laughs> Truly. I was also really happy to see Jimmy Duvall in it, who if anybody, any mm-hmm. of you don't know him, that's uh, Frank the Bunny mm-hmm. from Donnie Darko jimmy mm-hmm. i've actually met jimmy duvall in real life i've had friends who've hung out with him mm-hmm. um jimmy is one of the loveliest people mm-hmm. ever um he is mm-hmm. he's every bit as fun as every one of his roles implies that makes he literally me so is,
0: happy.
1: It, yeah he is totally frank the bunny yeah he um, seems like
0: such a nice guy and like yeah. it was, was so affable even in his like very weird role in this movie like it's so hard not to like him and yeah. i'm always happy when that carries through in life
1: <laughs> a lot of the veterans a lot of the veterans are especially the ones where they didn't like they where they're not like oscar winners or they're not mm-hmm. being hounded those are actually my favorite people to mm. see at the conventions cuz it's like they're so chill and they're so laid back and it's mm-hmm. like hey buddy how you doing and it's like oh my god it's a normal person who doesn't have a <laughs> fucking complex welcome
0: Oh wouldn't that be nice yeah always always appreciate that
1: <laughs> So yeah you know, let me ask you like you know if you had to make out with any veteran actor guy or girl who oh, would Jesus. be a, like they have to be like over 60
0: Oh Ooh. uh mm over 60, that's, that's so hard. Because um, I'd be answer... doing it for
1: learning purposes. Yeah. Know, also for complete perversion, but yeah.
0: Immediate answer is like Patrick Stewart, I think. Or like Ian right. McKellen would be incredibly non-threatening. Like, oh, I, I feel like e- like Ian McKellen and I would just like have a nice time and like laugh right. about it afterwards. Patrick Stewart, like, could kind of get into it. Right. Um, if we're talking non-veteran actors, but like just mm-hmm. the... the Old man, I would most like to smooch Craig Ferguson. He is not a veteran Ooh. actor, but would love to give him a smooch. I think that the, would be
1: great. The gentleman who, just just to clear this, the, the mm-hmm. gentleman who runs has his own show. The Scottish gentleman who's
0: very Yes, tall. yes, yes. Yeah, the yeah. former oh, Night yeah. Show host. I yeah, he's like
1: really a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, so. he delightful. He was one that I like. I loved that his late night <laughs> show when I was probably in like high school so much that as a teenager, my mom got me tickets to go see his live. show show yeah. his touring live show so it was me and my mom i was like probably 16 or 17 in the audience of like solely people over 40
1: <laughs> well, everybody was enamored with him everybody still is i know he so.
0: delightful delightful He's presence yeah can dance, absolutely he can sing yeah. Oh, yeah uh my brain is still going now you've opened terrible floodgates i'm, I'm sitting here like how old is Kate blanchett i'm
1: I know, not right? that
0: old but <laughs>
1: I'm some, like for me it would be like Helen Moran oh right? like, yes I also think mm-hmm. you know Helen Moran was also very interested in what it would be like to kiss Jack Nicholson now I'm kind of like yeah you know I still yep. all day at this Jack Torrance Funko pop doll yeah I'd, I'd like to know what that's like
0: uh-huh know. yeah yeah yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd I at least learn
1: something you know
0: yeah so, yeah uh, <laughs>
1: If I had, like, anybody, anybody, it would probably be Holland Roden, but my wife already knows that. Mm-hmm. Her agents and her bodyguards. And, uh... Uh-huh, uh-huh.
0: <laughs> got it. Got it. Julie noted.
1: No, no, for the record fans, no, that's never happened, but yeah. Yep. But yeah. I can't really think about anyone else there. No, um...
0: I, I mean, you've got good answers already. Yeah. <laughs>
1: She has a show called Holland Days. I'm like, yeah, that's every day with Holland. It's Holland Days. Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) Well, I also, I know I talked a lot of shit about patchwork clothing Mm. during the watch along, and I stand by it. With all respect, it's fucking ugly. But I can say, objectively, the costume in this movie was really good. So I tried to look into it a little bit. The costume design was done by Mariano Diaz and Marcelo Pequeño. Mm. Now, Mm -hmm. Pequeño only has one other costuming credit for This Girl's Life and one art direction credit, but Diaz has a plush resume. Okay. So he worked in costuming for three movies between 2001 and 2002, costume designer for Perfect Lover and May, and then costume sketch artist for Star Trek Nemesis, which, very fun. Mm. Holy Um, shit. And then his real bread and butter though is being a general concept artist and he has credits on 35 different productions between 1997 and today including X-Men, Spy Kids, The Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions and Captain America: The Winter Soldier and Captain America: Civil War. He yeah, then was so re- like
1: Lindy Hemming that somebody mm-hmm. really knows what the fuck they're oh, doing. Oh yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, okay. He's recently returned to his costuming roots uh receiving costume concept artist billing for this year's Jungle mm-hmm. Cruise movie that just came out. Um, all this to say, like, you've done some great work, Mr. Diaz, but he also has an account on ArtStation, and also one with a little less content on Instagram, where you can see some of his concept art pieces, and he has a lot of work, too, for some of the newer Marvel movies, like, he did Thor Ragnarok concept art. I didn't see him credited for that one, so I'm not sure what his involvement was, but he is deep in the Marvel universe.
1: (laughs) I mean, considering all the stuff that they used on set, maybe it somehow got lost in there, but, like... You know, to be on that level, just fans, just to be clear, like Lindy Hemming is the person who did like Daredevil, Joker. Mm -hmm. You know, those are, again, like when you're doing like Keanu Reeves' stuff and you're doing like, you know, getting all those textures in there. And Star Trek Nemesis, Picard was, you know, the younger Picard looks like something sort of like a lich, uh, Mm -hmm. like in leather. It's fairly amazing. I remember looking at Picard's outfit, going, "Is that Izma from The Emperor's New Groove?" No. <laughs> uh, but no, like, that's know, Tom Hardy. <laughs> but they're definitely very distinct looks. Um, or Aiko Ishioka, who's another fantastic designer. We'll get to her in another couple mm-hmm. of months. But yeah, um, yeah, just fantastic artists. But, yeah, yeah. Diaz, Diaz is, yeah, Diaz is the mm-hmm. shit.
0: Yes, yeah, so. absolute. Got the resume, seems to be still having a goddamn good time with it, and that's what I love to see. I'm just like so happy for him, <laughs> but that is a name that I will now be watching out for in movie credits. Oh yeah. So we talked uh you already of course mentioned Frankenstein because it's pretty impossible to uh to not, not talk about Frankenstein here. I mean Blank's arm tattoo and you know the stitching together of an actual new living body from Corpse Bits naturally makes you have Frankenstein on the brain, so I did a little research on the plausibility of a real Frankenstein creature. Um, and I got most of this info from Michelle Starr's 2018 CNET magazine article called Halloween Treat, A Brief History of Real-Life Frankensteins. So, let's go way back and talk Mary Shelley's Frankenstein first. So, in the late 1700s is when the story really begins. In 1780, Italian physician and scientist Luigi Galvani discovered the phenomenon of galvanism, muscle contraction when electricity is applied. So this happened when he hit a dead frog with an electrical spark and watched it do a morbid tango. So Galvani became obsessed with this phenomenon. He zapped lots and lots of dead things, as did some of his scientific compatriots at the time. But it turns out that he passed that love down in the family, and it was his nephew, Giovanni Aldini, who finally got the legal permissions to zap a human body. So, George Forster was a convicted wife and child murderer. He was hanged at London's Newgate prison on January 18th, 1803, and after hanging around for a bit, I'm so sorry, Uh, (laughs) the deceased Forster was delivered into Aldini's hands for the first recorded human galvanization session. So a crowd at the prison watched as Forster's electrified corpse raised a clenched fist, wiggled its legs, and contorted its face into some rather nasty expressions, and I mean I probably would too if I just received a heavy voltage. (laughs) <laughs> Aldini was bummed that the experiment didn't bring the corpse back to life, even though it would have been a little inconvenient to execute faster again, but uh. he was undeterred in his ultimate goal to use galvanism as a way to resuscitate someone. And nowadays we know that he was sort of on the right track, because I had to receive training in high school, which I have absolutely forgotten, on how to use a defibrillator, which restarts the heart with an electric current. Back in the 1800s, though, Mary Shelley was only five years old when Aldini had conducted that original experiment, but experiments in Galvanism were still going on in 1818 when she published Frankenstein, and she very likely knew about them. So, a Scottish doctor named Andrew Yore repeated a similar experiment on another hanged murderer, Matthew Clydesdale, in 1818. But he focused the electricity on the phrenic nerve, which was his own effort to reverse the deadly effects of suffocation. He believed that targeting that would be the, the, the trick. He, of course, didn't have much more success than Aldini did, but his work was closely followed by the Royal Humane Society in London, and that was originally founded in 1774 under the name the Society for the Recovery of Persons Apparently Drowned. Bit of a mouthful, but gets to the point. They were unsurprisingly big ol' fans of cutting-edge resuscitation techniques, which I didn't know merited their own society, but I guess was a big deal in the 1700s. And it was one of those resuscitation techniques that saved Mary Shelley's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, when she tried to drown herself in the Thames. So this all comes right back around from resuscitation to Galvanism to Frankenstein and Mary Shelley's inspiration for the spark that rejuvenated life.
1: The other element of Frankenstein uh, was that Mary Wollstonecraft was going down the river. Uh, mm. She was going down the Rhine with her husband, uh, ended up at uh, Burg Frankenstein, which mm-hmm. is supposed to be, which is reputed to be 5,000 mm. years old or something, but I don't really know. Uh, nobody's ever really confirmed it for sure. Um, the, and she heard this, she supposedly heard the story of... Joseph Conrad Dippel, who was born August 10th, 1673, and he grew up with an education in alchemy, and he was always looking for the elixir of life. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing led to another. Uh, He was trying to uh, get the Philosopher's Stone. He supposedly made a Faustian bargain. Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, we're going to get there.
1: (laughs) um, Dippel took to grave robbery, um, stole corpses from the nearby Nidabiebach Cemetery and dissected them in his laboratory. And uh, people did believe he had stumbled upon the elixir of life created from, quote, animal oils, and even named his concoction Dippel's oil. Uh, Dippel was so Mm -hmm. sure of the oil's life-extending powers that he even tried purchasing Castle Frankenstein Mm -hmm. in exchange for a batch of it. Uh, (laughs) But his offer was rejected, and between his newly claimed discovery, frequent uh, grave robbing, and hermetic lifestyle. The village of Darmstadt came to believe that he had sold his soul to Satan uh, in exchange for the philosopher's stone. And um, yeah, the long and short of it is that he supposedly died uh, at the age of 135 after running out of the elixir at Castle Wittgenstein in Bad Lasva, Germany under quote, uncertain circumstances. Some believe uh, that it was a stroke brought on by his elixir of life and others believe that Um, Dipple wanted to go to the church so badly that, uh, Satan took Dipple away as a fulfillment of the pact.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So basically all this to say, there are several reasons why zapping a body together Mm. would have seemed plausible. This, this idea of bringing the dead tissue back to life is, was very present on the 1818 brain, especially for Mary Shelley. Um, so that's, like, the original inspiration for ye old Frankenstein. But let's talk a little more about Frankenstein in the modern era. The next big wave after galvanism experiments, the next big wave in Frankenstein-esque experimentation was transplantation. So rather than trying to create something alive out of all dead tissue, a few bold and very creepy scientists tried to fuse living creatures... By basically carefully sewing them together. So Soviet scientist Vladimir Demikov was a great pioneer and developed lots of valuable techniques in the field of organ transplantation. But he didn't stop there. So I'm just going to throw in a quick little animal cruelty warning here.
1: Just want to say that when I learned about this guy when I was about 13 Mm -hmm. in Catholic school, I remember the scientists went so-called scientists. And this Uh was one of two people. Please continue.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so blanket animal cruelty warning here. Just skip ahead a few seconds if you'd rather not have that in your day. But in 1954, he transplanted the upper half of a small dog's body onto the shoulders of a large dog, creating a two-headed, six-legged combo dog. The two heads could eat, drink, and think separately. Unsurprisingly, they only survived four days before both died due to tissue rejection. And this began a long string of quite gruesome and honestly disturbing transplantation experiments by Demikov and a whole range of his really competitive scientific compatriots who were like, oh, he did it. Well, then I'll do it, too. And this (laughs) continued to this day, with notable experiments in the early 2000s and another promise from Italian surgeon Dr. Sergio Canavero to perform the first human head transplant in 2018, which notably has not happened. But (laughs) if we look back at May... I'm suddenly seeing her willingness to just sew a dog's rotten leg back on a little differently. Is this the same caliber of work as the affirmation transplantation experiments? No, No. not really. But the combined willingness to test the boundaries and the refusal to accept tissue rejection does sound pretty similar. And all of that really makes her determination to create a human Frankenstein track for me. So May May might not have had the same scientific background as many of her now ignominious predecessors, but she had her own theories of what it took to rekindle life that don't seem that much more far-fetched than an electrical spark fixing a broken neck.
1: (laughs) I mean, and to be honest, she was really only working with one subject at a time, and she was getting consent Mm -hmm. i would like to be very clear she was getting consent Mm
0: -hmm. there is
1: another piece of shit uh who should be noted on the record whose name is joseph mangala and i'll leave that uh, m-e-n-g-e-l-e you can all wiki that if you want to be really depressed yeah if you you want to have
0: a bad day go ahead go yeah yeah yeah, but i mean if all this worked for dr frankenstein why not for may and besides we know that doll wasn't going to give her a good education in biology or anything Mm. else so if it's explanation yep. of sex ed was that terrible, then I'm sure she didn't get great biology either. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely tragic work. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So, I also think uh, of The Tempest.
1: The Tempest mm, is another mm-hmm. one. After watching Westworld, I actually start to think, hey, man, you know what? It's weird. Um, Caliban actually... Technically comes out as some sort of an alchemical construct, right? Mm-hmm, because it was created mm-hmm. by Prospero. And I'm like, holy shit. Technically speaking, some of these things, when we look back in time far enough, are they're they're they are Frankenstein monsters, but they're early oh, yeah. forerunners, right? Yeah, so, I mean,
0: that is a really fun rabbit hole to go down is looking at old alchemy. And I mean, the, the I fusion... think of them as
1: Frankenstein prototypes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's how I it mean, helps but... for me.
0: they are essentially it's a weird thing to talk about though because alchemist and also magician for that you know matter of fact were real life job positions there were people who i'm an alchemist i'm a chem like i'm a magician i'm whatever but at the same time you're hearing these fantastical stories being put together in plays and stuff like that of the effects of alchemy and so then you have this fusion of real life people who were alchemists and then the fantastical effect of alchemy and stories these creatures and creations that really make it sometimes difficult to draw the boundaries between reality and fiction when you're looking back you know 500 years in the past
1: i will say that every myth has a bit of truth to it though. sure there is always something where you you know you may have a chemical reaction it's just not um It's just, it's not turning lead into gold, unfortunately. No, No, it's not Or very fortunately, because, you know, inflation and then, you know, the market would be saturated. I'm down uh...
0: for it. Fuck up the economy. Gold standard is so ridiculous. Let's let's destroy it all. Burn it. Love it. (laughs) I am pro-alchemy. I'm going on the record. Pro-alchemy. Turn stuff into gold, (laughs) y'all.
1: No, you're not thinking big enough. Turn stuff into stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. We actually we technically speaking, we did do that uh, about a week or so ago. We managed to, for a very brief time, turn uh, light into matter for mm-hmm. about a millionth of a second. We mm-hmm. got a couple of molecules to 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 work. We also managed to harvest the power mm-hmm. of a neutron star for about a billionth of a second. <laughs> we, we kind of emulated it now. Do I trust us chimpanzees to have that power? No. Uh, no. Is it nice to know that it can be done? Yes. Yeah.
0: It's a very cool concepts that very thankfully are locked so far behind
1: right. barriers
0: of education and resources that 99.999% yep. well of the population will never come close to those experiments. And that's probably for the best.
1: In the bedroom, the creepy bedroom, (laughs) Goldblurb sleeps tonight. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, May was uh, a lovely movie. Feel bad for her. Um, Also, feel bad for almost everyone in the movie, really or Nobody just ends. be
1: grateful for uh, you see that's not how I see it I see it as there but for the grace of God go we let us be grateful for what we do fucking have and you want to know something when we somebody, see somebody at a bus stop you know who's lonely or somebody who looks like they could use a friend you know what don't hesitate it's amazing that this is coming from a horror fan you know don't don't you know? they may not actually be a monster that's going to transform and eat you on the bus they may just need a hug or somebody to talk to
0: or an arm so, Or maybe they'll take your arm. Right. We took very different lessons from this movie.
1: (laughs) Right. So you're, I guess, we're saying just lend a hand. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh, good. Oh good. Speaking of hacking and slashing, let's talk about the voices.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ryan
0: Reynolds loves this movie so much and he He's he said, so
1: disappointed oh, that I it's know. Not he known. said, and I quote,
0: <laughs> one of my favorite movies I've ever done. Never really got its day in court, but man, it's weird and fun and beautiful. And he's so right. Like it's it is a bizarre but entertaining movie, and it is it does surprise me that I hadn't heard about it before this. Like, I mean, I was not exactly a horror movie buff you know in 2014 but but
1: you were a ryan reynolds fan for sure
0: (laughs) i was i was like ryan reynolds aware i wasn't even oh come on
1: we were all smitten i was smitten from like amityville remake okay and that was like the early 2000s i I was like holy crap that was not in my
0: contemporary consciousness at that point i don't think basically i like i don't think i became aware of ryan reynolds like as more than an abstract concept until the Deadpool campaigning worked out And then I only really cared About Ryan Reynolds with emphasis Once he was in Detective Pikachu And I'm sorry but that (laughs) is the truth
1: (laughs) I became A fan of Ryan Reynolds when the movie Waiting Came out which is something which is very Controversial for everybody Uh, I love Dane Cook's character in there too you can all hate me there are days where i've loved Dane cook especially my best friend's girlfriend um i think that those are fantastic films mm-hmm. uh crucify me if you must um but we digress written yes. by michael r perry who is the same author who scripted eerie indiana and wayward pines the voices is about a nice guy named jerry who works at a bathtub factory in the small town of milton no idea what state which would really be a nice retheme of of Works for horror fans who were Photoshop-inclined, <laughs> which means I'll get to it in a couple of months. Yeah, of course. Uh, he lives in an apartment above a bowling alley with his dog Bosco and his cat, Mr. Whiskers, and eventually he even gets some pretty talking lady heads in his fridge. <laughs> and he has a lot of adventures with his pets because Jerry's actually schizophrenic and he's not taking his meds. And the conundrum for Jerry is that Every time he does take his meds, uh, he's confronted with terrible loneliness because his pets can't talk to him anymore. His apartment is filthy. And the truth is, he's a child abuse victim whose mother forced him into a non-consensual assisted suicide. Um,
0: Not a good time. Not not a good time. time.
1: So, again, kind of like May, where we've got this lens of everything's okay when everything's not okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, it ch- turns out childhood trauma can pan out poorly later. As is the lesson of so many horror movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's despite all that, a fun movie. Like we talked about the voice acting in it is so fun because Ryan Reynolds voices all of his voices. So he, in accent, is the dog Mr. Is the dog Bosco and the cat uh, Mr. Whiskers. He's the sock puppet bunny that he played with as a child. He's the deer he hits with his car on its gruesome, you know, path to very swift death. Um, he's everybody so it's really a tour de force in ryan reynolds <laughs>
1: which isn't a surprise because this isn't the first time or the last time he's done it he did it again with juggernaut he did mm-hmm. it earlier that's that's his jam he's mm-hmm. really he's he's basically it's like eddie murphy doing every role it's just you know multi-talented um i will say that between may and this film i definitely got that i'm not okay by chemical my chemical romance vibe <laughs> yeah. I yeah. love that one moment where he kisses his friend on the cheek and goes, trust me. <laughs> you're <laughs> like, yeah, we're that level of fucked, aren't we? <laughs> so. Yep, yep,
0: yep yeah no i'm with all the love in my heart i I don't trust you anymore like it's 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 tough because this is another one where he starts so sweet like he ryan reynolds manages to be so fucking likable in this movie like we watch him kill so many people so many people and yet you're still like oh what a sweet man all the way to the end
1: the thing that i think captures it is that he's got this boyish charm and Mm -hmm. somewhere between and i don't know i'm fairly certain that they did it on purpose but you can tell somewhere between the makeup and his demeanor that he's going for tony perkins and psycho Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. actually i would also say he's going for tony perkins in tim burton's hitchcock which also says some other things um there is a a demeanor to him where it's very unassuming it's Mm -hmm. very boyish it's very innocent uh if anybody's ever Mm -hmm. taken the time to look up tony perkins he's Mm -hmm. also done a lot of jazz covers and everything Mm -hmm. but they're gentle sensual Mm -hmm. jazz covers he's always doing something where he's like he covered um speak low and i've got Mm -hmm. sand in my shoe uh it's the Mm -hmm. same sort of character you've got this gentle Mm -hmm. soul and it is balanced out with insane violence Mm -hmm. you
0: know yeah and i mean not to of course as usual connect things to either mass effect or dragon age but brief connection (laughs) to dragon age in dragon age inquisition there's uh, a creature who's a spirit who's one of your friends that his whole thing is he's he's a spirit of compassion but the way that that pans out is if he sees someone suffering, he's going to take a knife to their throat because they're suffering.
1: Right. And
0: it's the thing that intellectually you can see how it makes sense. But you see it happen. and You're like, oh, no, 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 right. no, 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 no. Don't. No.
1: <laughs> Trust me.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So it's the sweetest character that he's always trying to do things for the right reasons like what? every time that he accidentally quote unquote Ooh. accidentally <laughs> hurts a woman he's like oh well are you suffering that question is the riskiest part of every movie <laughs> because, you know, I mean the riskiest part of every scene in the movie because like he's like well if you're mm. suffering you've signed your own you know death like certificate Because there's one way to end the suffering, and my mom I mean, taught me. I until we me. get to
1: Jackie, at, at, at the point we've gotten to Jackie, even Bosco's like, "Remember when I said I thought you had a problem, but you had a good soul? Uh-huh. Yeah, I've, I've i've changed my opinion." Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of looking at Bosco, and it's like, "Hey, to Bosco," yeah, Bosco's and Bosco's like, "Yeah, fuck right. you, dude."
0: <laughs> if the angel on your shoulder is right. saying you're past the point of no return. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's you're, you're shit out of luck. And and to to dive into that a little bit, this whole thing, the entire Bosco and Mr. Wister's dynamic is absolutely an adaptation of the old angel on one shoulder, devil on the other trope.
1: Sure. Which
0: then of course got me wondering how old that trope is. So guess what? I did some research. So the earliest example of this that I could trace back was the play, The Castle of Perseverance, um, well, Castle Perseverance, um, which which premiered between 1405 and 1425, probably around Norfolk, England. So this is a classic morality play, but interestingly is also the earliest full-length vernacular play that we know of. That is a play that's done outside of the church. So this play follows the personification of mankind over the duration of his life as he negotiates the balance between godly piety and worldly temptations. And he's introduced with a good angel and a bad angel who try to sway him to their respective sides. As usual, the bad angel wins almost immediately as mankind takes the worldly path and says, fuck yeah, introduce me to those seven deadly sins. So he does some more... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he does more sinful stuff before he's struck down by death, and on his deathbed he prays a lot, and after some holy debate, he's absolved and allowed into heaven. Yay! It's so hardly groundbreaking stuff, but maybe it was in 1405. No disrespect to the unknown author. It
1: worked here, too. I mean, uh-huh. it's about the same deal. It, so. uh,
0: yeah, sounds familiar. And fun fact for the theater nerds out there, there's a stage sketch in the only surviving manuscript which seems to show that it was performed as theater in the round all the way back in the early 1400s. And this is baller considering that the format was rarely used between the end of the Greek and Roman empires in like 600 AD all the way up until the 20th century. So it's a really unusual example in the 1400s of theater in the round. Anyway, very fun, very cool to me. And Also, Timoner, thank you for indulging.
1: (laughs) No, that's noteworthy, that's definitely history.
0: Mm Mm-hmm, for sure. Now, the more famous early example of the, the trope is Christopher Marlowe's play, The Tragical History of the Life and Death of Dr. Faustus, premiered in 1592. So this plot is based upon the old Faust archetype, which was based on a probably real dude, alchemist, astrologer and magician Johann Georg Faust, who died in 1541 and rapidly became a folk legend of a man who sells his soul to the devil in exchange for magical powers in his remaining time on Earth. You know, the Faustian bargain. Anyway, Marlowe ate that shit up and wrote his own play all about it. So the plot is about as you expect faustus is a brilliant and good for a, a good at everything scientist incredibly bored and wants more so he says you know what would probably that's never
1: be- the way that i think of it it's more like <laughs> he wants a hot girl's ass and he'll do well, anything I mean, to get it it's really what it comes yeah, out to be
0: yeah like i don't think he admitted that to himself at the beginning but that mm. is of course where it ends <laughs> So yeah. so he's like, I am simply overwrought. Mm. I've done everything I can with with mm. the capabilities known to man, and I need more, mm. but we know what that means. Yeah. So he Some says... Hair. You know what would probably be exciting: infinite power in a pact with the devil. So he invokes the <laughs> devil and meets Mephistopheles, his demon representative, who brokers the deal that has uh, a deal that has Mephistopheles bound in service to Faust for the next 24 years, at which point he will be yoinked into hell for all eternity. Oh. He, of course, entirely squanders all that power on trivial tricks to impress big famous people, the notable exception to which is summoning the very dead Helen of Troy and going, Damn, what a hottie, that's my lover now! Which is very weird, but also undeniably impressive, so like...
1: There's a moment where I actually think Mephistopheles should have stepped in and been like, listen, there's this thing called spring break. Now I'm not <laughs> saying there's gonna be a lot of quality, but I can't yeah, say quantity.
0: I know, I know. It, it's really like Faustus needed a needed like his Springer rather than like a devil's yeah. bargain. Like that could have taken yeah. things down a very different path. Um anyway, you know, after twenty four years were you gonna say something?
1: No, I mean I, yeah, sure. I was thinking you know, like the, like, I always think like, nah, compared to yesterday, there's a, there a pimp would actually show up at the door, probably be Samuel L. Jackson be like, My good sir, can I show you this thing called a brothel? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I
0: know. I know. Like really all he wanted was to fuck, but didn't figure right. that out until way too late in the in the bargain. So because after twenty four years, his time is up and he is very, very damned to hell. Good job, Faust.
1: Yeah. The part
0: that matters for our purposes, the reason that I'm talking about this, comes away at the beginning of the play. When he's waiting for a couple of magicians to help him figure out just how exactly to call the Devil Direct hotline. When two angels appear to him. You know where this is going. The Good Angel and the Bad Angel argue their cases against and for magic and devil contact, and while the Good Angel makes some real points, Faust of course says fuck it and decides that the Bad Angel had some pretty good ideas. So, the Good Angel and the Bad Angel in the voices probably have more fur than their historical counterparts, but as usual, the Bad Angel's argument usually ends up hitting the mark. The slightly unexpected reversal is Jerry eventually accepting Bosco's counsel at the very end of the movie and embracing his death. Now, that last-minute salvation idea isn't totally new. That happens, as I said, at the end of the Castle of Perseverance and lots of later adaptations of the Faustian, like, kind of Mm -hmm. legend. What's different is the good angel coming back. In most old texts, those guys are gone forever once the good or bad angel wins out and it's a different agent of God who has to circle back to negotiate entrance through the pearly gates. But you know where the angel and devil stick around? It's in cartoons, baby! So by the time they hit cartoons in this modern era of entertainment, those two angels had been solidly converted into one angel representing good and one devil representing evil. Disney got back in the got in on that action way back in 1942 with a short donald's decision which had angel and devil versions of donald duck trying to convince and dissuade him from buying war bonds super subtle propaganda there disney um (laughs) but i remember seeing this trope all the time tom and jerry cartoons are the biggest thing that i remember from my childhood and they were rarely one-time appearances the angel and devil would try to sway tom and or jerry to their side But then they would always pop up again to judge the results of their actions and, like, laugh at the hilarious cartoon shenanigans and terrible mistakes that (laughs) that Tom and Jerry made. Now, my favorite contemporary example by far is Kronk's Angel and Devil in The Emperor's New Groove, which is such a good movie and I'm overdue Mm -hmm. for a rewatch. But this appears all over the place. Flintstones, Simpsons, you name it. Simpsons
1: is the best Mm -hmm. for me. Simpsons has a lot of it. Where it's basically two devil Barts on Devil on, on uh-huh. Bart's shoulder, and it's right. like, it's like, fuck this guy, yeah, yeah, fuck this guy, let's go, <laughs> let's go, let's go, wreak massive carnage, mm-hmm. and you're like, yeah, you know what, Bart's got the right idea at least. You know, the thing that I appreciate about Bart is that he's not in conflict with himself.
0: No, no, <laughs> like, no he is utterly at peace.
1: In terms of the major, uh, you know, in terms of the contributions. To literature, uh, of course, there is Andrew Niderman's The Devil's Advocate, which we will get to at length uh, at one point. Yeah, the other contribution is uh, Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita, which uh, in case any of you haven't read it, again, definitely something you should read. Uh, if you're going to be a horror writer or if you're going to be a writer or yeah, if you're just looking to enrich your lives, that's like right up there with anything from Dostoevsky. Um, yeah. So, but yeah. Yeah, in terms of Faustian bargains, those were, those, you know, Faust, you know, Dr. Faust basically put all of that to head.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's a trope that we see time and time and time again. Time and again. And, time again, and all of that stuff, yeah, and all of that stuff is what laid the groundwork for the voices, which is, you know, a cartoonishly exaggerated angel mm-hmm. and devil with goofy voices that feel like they could have stepped out of a cartoon, you know, if it wasn't for all the swearing and murder. But... you know, <laughs> It's, it's mean, Faust they again. Could have,
1: then they could have stepped out of an adult swim cartoon. Yes, that's,
0: exactly. That's yeah. So not not Looney Tunes, but adult cartoons, certainly. Right.
1: right. I mean, which <laughs> are the only ones anybody watches anymore, because it's all of us <laughs> who are like in our 30s and 40s who are still watching cartoons. The kids have moved on. I don't on, know.
0: I don't know. See, I, so I'll, I'll dabble occasionally, but I, I'm a sucker. I just want to watch Ghibli and, and Steven Universe. Let's be real but you know. keeping it
1: german here for a second i should mention that most of this stuff was shot in germany uh around mm-hmm. berlin uh and Teltow, potsdam gorgeous woods all over germany i just want to say germany gets uh such a bad rap and i understand that like in terms of like you know in the american mind uh as somebody who writes like a german comic book and other things i just want to say that a lot of people um you know they still think that Germany is a place where people are wearing lederhosen. Mm-hmm. And, and I hate to tell you guys this, but if you're like American or Canadian, mm-hmm. um, German infrastructure is actually like way better than American or Canadian infrastructure. Um, mm-hmm. And their landscape is uh, absolutely breathtaking. So mm-hmm. if you guys get the opportunity to, you should definitely come and uh, visit some of these places. Um, the, the studio mm-hmm. over in Potsdam uh, was, was really amazing um yeah it's it's actually quite amazing what it is that uh, or i should say the landscape shots are really were really notable because they were just as green and lush mm. as anything that you would find in maine or or vermont sure, it's really sure. amazing
0: yeah so. yeah it's a beautiful place and i mm. i truly had no idea that it was shot in germany that's very mm. funny it makes sense the, like given there are yeah, some of the german actors be and the, 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 the tie to yeah for, yeah for jerry's mom being german and I I see where it came from, but unexpected. The director on
1: this was another genius, my John Satrapi, who is like Anna Lily Amirpour, a Persian director with a talent to balance out our terror with our hilarity. So um, I think you mentioned in the watch along that Ben Stiller Mm -hmm. almost played the part. It says, thank fuck he didn't. No one was going to yes. nail the Tony Perkins. Yeah, look it the almost way that had Ben
0: Stiller and a different director. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad. Yeah. yeah, thank you, thank you, Marjan and Ryan, for your contributions.
1: In case you don't know him, he is the gentleman mm-hmm. who produced the voices, the Gray, the 2012 version mm-hmm. of Dread, uh, which fans still want a sequel to, and more recently cast the animated series. Yeah, and and his face series. is of course. Yeah. This guy. His face is
0: John in the office, for those who don't know, the, the, the office guy.
1: I don't have more to say. Yeah. Unless you do.
0: Absolutely delightful. Um Yes. Yeah, so, so my last, my last deep dive kind of topic to to unite the two was because you know I'm, I'm always thinking about like you know what what connects the films that we watch and the unfortunate loneliness, answer this month was of course necrophilia. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, loneliness, sure, but that's that's a broad topic. Necrophilia has some specificity that I could really sink my teeth into, so let's take take a little deep dive. Um, first, let's take a peek at Jack Pemmin's 2018 article in Psychology Today called "The Appeal of Necrophilia," and I'm going to read what I consider one of the key quotes with some obvious asides added by by me. Um, <clears throat> It is sometimes mentioned in the literature that necrophilia stems from the need for an unresisting partner. Hello, Jerry begging Lisa to stop resisting as he bludgeons her to death. This can be unpacked in various ways, but it is possible that this stems from the need for a non-judgmental partner, which is something that many people desire from their own healthy relationships. And that is Jerry and May both to a T. Jerry craves Fiona's attention, and May craves Adam's attention, and both of them think that their respective protagonists are weird and ultimately undesirable. Continuing, this also goes for the need not to be hurt or let down... May responding violently to Polly's perceived betrayal after being jilted by Adam. Or perhaps the fear of being unable to produce a reciprocal orgasm during intercourse. That's a little bit outside the scope of these movies, but that could be an underlying theme. Who knows? There's always sexual repression there.
1: (laughs) I mean, the DSM always covers a wide variety of things where they don't even feel Uh like they've fallen to the umbrella of necrophilia, so...
0: Well, yeah, Mm -hmm. okay, so... there are a lot of classifications of necrophilia. So I, I do have, I, I have, I have a chart. Of course I have a chart. Where is it in my tabs? Talking to a man who teaches <laughs> it.
1: Not how to do it, but yeah. uh, what the qualifications are. At least not, well, no, so uh, there, you know, no, no skull fucking, no pocket rocket oh to the God. eye socket. You know? uh-huh. Just, uh, yeah.
0: So to briefly talk about classifications, there is one of the kind of, uh the ways of classifying necrophiliacs that is talked about a lot referenced in a lot of scientific papers and i will say with a heavy grain of salt a lot of people have complained about this and say that it's not comprehensive but it is still one of the industry standards that people use um comes from a paper by agrawal Mm -hmm. in 2009 which is a 10-tier classification of necrophilia where these there are categories Mm -hmm. of you know people who just get turned on by somebody role-playing as a corpse, people who can only get turned on by this, people who are incidental, I think. Anyway, it gets into a lot, but both of, both Jerry and May seem to start as romantic Mm. necrophiliacs who are typically bereaved people who remain attached to their dead lover's body. Mm. So they don't start with the desire of going in to be like, God, yes, I'm only turned on by corpses. They're people who are attached to people and then just keep being attached to them after they're dead. So it is a specific categorization of necrophilia, it develops from there for sure, which is part of why Agrawal's system does not allow for a lot of nuance and development. But, let's go back to Pement for a minute, because Pement also wrote a follow-up article in 2019, also in Psychology Today, called The Building Blocks of Necrophilia. In it, he mentions that there are no particularly strong correlations between people who exhibit necrophiliac, nec- uh, necrophiliac behavior and having other mental illnesses, but he does mention that some studies have noted that there are examples of necrophilia coexisting with schizophrenia. He then goes on to say these disorders and illnesses are also useful to us in understanding necrophilia because sensory perceptions, particularly olfaction and gustation, are different when compared to a control population of healthy volunteers. The smell of a dead body is unique and involves putrefaction, which most people find abhorrent. This makes one wonder how somebody with necrophilic desires could approach a corpse and not be repulsed enough to, deter- to decide not to interfere with a body differences in olfaction could hold the answer. So basically, studies show that, six, that schizophrenic individuals tend to be worse at identifying scents, and they generally rank all smells, including g- typically gross smells, as more pleasant than their non-schizophrenic counterparts. This immediately makes part of the voices more plausible. Like remember that moment where Jerry actually took his meds, realized that Fiona's decapitated head smelled like shit, then when he went off his meds again, he said she smelled lovely and yeah. Yeah, I mean, everything is butterflies, but he specifically talks about her smell, and is like, oh, you smell so great, just like baby shampoo. Yeah, turns out there's some scientific plausibility for that directly related to the schizophrenic experience and their olfaction. Side note, still worrying that Jerry's fantasy scent for his dream girl is baby shampoo. Seems like that might link right back to Jerry's childhood trauma and that he hasn't changed what he'd like since then, but... Regardless, yes, uh, pennant continues to say this is even more relevant for those necrophiles who have re- repeat interactions with the same corpse, as the course of putrefaction would be met with higher tolerance. Very relevant for Jerry and his gory Tupperware-filled apartment, but hey, at least Mae didn't have to smell Amy for long. <laughs> so, you know, there's... Right, right. That we know of. That's one where there's clearly the opportunity for a surprise sequel or reboot, uh, you know, a la the uh, uh, Fright Night sequels that came out when you didn't think there were going to be them. (laughs) Uh, but, you know, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot more that could be said.
1: I love that sentence because it shows that you're definitely becoming a horror veteran just with that sentence.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I just call it like I see it and when it's right in front of me. <laughs> yeah, so, a uh, fun little jaunt into the psychology of, uh, hanging out with dead bodies for fun, y'all. I, I recommend not doing that on your yeah. Tuesday afternoon, but... Be grateful for
1: your friends Be grateful for what you have Again, be grateful for your But
0: Right, and I'm going to try to keep my friends alive And and I'm going to try
1: not to have sex with them (laughs) When they're dead it's gonna it's a big goal of mine mm-hmm, gonna mm-hmm. write it down on my hand as a I yeah, cr- I don't know if it's gonna get smudged or not yeah but. that
0: would categorize you as an opportunistic necrophile mm-hmm. as I can tell you from the reading right. I did just So don't. don't just don't
1: <laughs> um well if you like the voices it pairs really really well with a girl walks home alone at night also 2014 also mm-hmm. pairs well mm-hmm. with the brass teapot mm-hmm. from 2012 or the world's end from 2013 If you liked May, I would pair that with Willard from 2003, Edward Scissorhands from 1990, or Cursed from 2005. Well, everybody, we hope you've had fun. 66 days till Halloween.
0: 66 days! Thanks for watching with us, and we will be back in full swing for Halloween season. Bye. Bye!
1: The Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Mona T. Lawrence. Find us at monaria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.